when I hear this reading on vines and vineyards, my mind goes back to the annual wine festival festival held in this church. Who remembers that? A few of you? That was last century for you younger ones. <clears throat> I remember how the vines are planted in drier, stony soils where they have to struggle and strive to get the nutrients they need. And this helps them to grow big and strong and fruitful. Apparently, so we were told, if vines get too comfortable living in rich, fertile soil, they don't produce such good crops. Sounds a bit like life for us, doesn't it? We have always had grapevines in the gardens wherever we have lived. When our children were young, they ate all the grapes before they became fully ripe. <clears throat> At our current house in Redcliffs, it was our young grandchildren who would pick the grapes and hide in the shrubbery so we couldn't see them eating them. It's only in the last year or two we've come to an agreement and now we're able to have the grapes grow fully ripe and we can all enjoy them. During winter, I prune back, back the branches of the vine and remove any loose bark. Throughout the winter, it's just a stem and two thick branches tied to the netting. Suddenly, as spring gathers pace, the bare branches of the vine sprout many little branches, seemingly overnight. And they're usually loaded with leaves and immature bunches of grapes. So, so out come the secateurs again. I prune back a little the new branches that have got little grape bunches on them, and the branches with no bunches at all get a pretty good pruning. This process ensures that the sap and nourishment gets to the fruit and is not wasted in just growing lots and lots of branches and leaves. This is a process that continues for some time, and I see the grapes and our picture on the screen have been pruned right back. There's not too many leaves there. The goodness is going into the grapes, and the grapes have got plenty of sunshine. The first part of chapter 15 of John's Gospel is about Jesus, the true vine. Vines and vineyards were common in Israel, and Jesus' listeners will understand what he was talking about. They also knew that the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, referred to Israel as God's vine. An elaborate vine was carved into the facade of the temple in Jerusalem as a reminder. In Psalm 80, we read of God bringing a vine out of Egypt and planting it in the Promised Land. You brought a vine out of Egypt, it says. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The prophet Isaiah draws on this picture when he chastises Israel for turning away from God. In chapter 5, we read of God planting a vineyard on a fertile hill and tending it. But instead of a good harvest, it yielded wild grapes. So he is going to abandon it to the winds and weather. Verse 7 says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Israel of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, but heard a cry. 
other prophets also use the same picture. Now, Jesus is saying that he is the true vine. This can only mean that he is, in himself, the true Israel. He is the one on whom God's purposes are now resting. And his followers are members of God's true people if they belong to him and remain in him. The picture of the vine isn't just a clever picture from gardening. It is a metaphor about who Jesus and his people really are and what is now going to happen to them as a result. So in these verses, which are part of Jesus' farewell discourse, his last things to say to his followers before his arrest and crucifixion, God is pictured as the vine grower or vine dresser, the pruner. Jesus is the vine, the source of life. We are the branches where the fruit grows. And today through baptism, Florence has also become a branch of that same vine. Jesus goes on to say that any of us who are fruitless will be pruned, cut off. Those who show fruit will be pruned a little to encourage the fruit to grow. The English language doesn't let us catch the flavour of what John writes here. The word he uses for prune in verse 2 is unusual and is very like the word for clean or pure in the next verse. That is why he's used it here. He wants us to link the pruning of the vine with the clean state of the disciples. They have already been pruned, though no doubt there is more to come. Jesus has spoken the word to them, calling them to take up their cross and follow him. They have had to submit to the pruner's knife, cutting away other goals and ambitions. They have already borne fruit. They must now expect more pruning so that they can bear more fruit. Verse 5 sums up what is being said. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. We are invited into a living, saving, liberating relationship with Jesus, and it is only through that relationship that we can bear much fruit. And what you may ask is the fruit that we're going, that we are called on to grow and show and share. Well, as an example, Galatians 5 has a good list. The fruit of the Spirit, it says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's a lot to tick off just in that, isn't there? Love, of course, was Jesus' commandment to us all. He said, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. The Isaiah passage I read a few minutes ago mentions God looking for justice and righteousness, but instead saw bloodshed and heard crying. In chapter 58, Isaiah cries out, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, 
to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. And continuing with lists of fruit, Jesus uses parts of 61, Isaiah 61, when he announces his mission statement in the synagogue in Nazareth, as reported in Luke 4. You remember the talk that he gave in his hometown that uh, resulted in an attempt on his life. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the reasons for the spirit being upon him was to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Within the farewell discourse as a whole in chapters 15 to 17, this section opens up a whole new dimension of what Jesus wants to say as he takes his leave of his closest associates. He has already spoken of being in him, and he is in the Father. Now we see more of what this means. On the one hand, it is a way of speaking of himself as Israel in person, and of his followers as, followers as members of God's true people, because they belong to him. On the other hand, it is a way of speaking of the intimate relationship with him that they and we are to enjoy and, so to speak, cultivate. Branches that decide to go it alone, to try living without the life of the vine, soon discover their mistake. They wither and die and are good for nothing but the fire. But branches that remain in the vine and submit to the pruner's knife when necessary, live and bear fruit. That is the prospect that Jesus holds out to his followers, to all of us. The urgent question then is, how do we remain in him? What does it look like in practice? Both of the meanings I have mentioned come into play. We must remain in the community that knows and loves him and celebrates him as Lord. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. We can't go it alone. But we must also remain as people of prayer and worship in our own private lives. We must make sure to be in touch, in tune with Jesus, knowing him and being known by him. Remember that the most extraordinary promises about prayer in verse 7, it says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But that wonderful verse accompanies the sharpest warnings in the previous verse. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers 
such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And though it hurts, we must be ready for the Father's pruning knife. God is glorified by us bearing good quality fruit and lots of it. For that to happen, there will be extra growth that needs cutting away. That too is an intimate process. The vine dresser is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. May Jesus, the true vine, continue to dwell among us as an abiding presence, and may we be open to remain as branches of that vine and to all that God wants to do in our lives to make us more fruitful. Amen. Thank you.